All right, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. All right, let me get set, set up. So I do also want to say happy Father's Day. Uh, I, I do want to say that uh, I don't have a sermon specifically for Father's Day because never, I've never been good like that. Um, one Mother's Day I preached on Hosea and talked about Gomer the prostitute. So uh, I'm not real sensitive to those things. But I do want to say happy Father's Day. And... Um, uh, one of our ho- hopes and aims this year is to press further into uh, just encouraging, equipping men in general and fathers in particular as you lead and love your families. And so uh, we're, we're on that. This, this week we're, we're in part two of our kind of mini-series. We paused our King in the Kingdom series through the Gospel of Matthew to uh, speak and, and press into our cultural moment, uh, just to press into uh, where we're at as a culture, where we're at as a nation. We're in Micah chapter 6 this morning. Uh, so you can begin to turn there. If, the, if humanity is described as a brotherhood, then it's a brotherhood in the line of Cain and Abel. Man's inhumanity towards man uh, has almost no limits. I've personally stood in the epicenter of some of the, the greatest atrocities, injustices the world has ever seen. Uh, took my daughter. We stood in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. We've walked through the killing fields of Cambodia, where two million Cambodians were put to death. I've uh, read the news about what's going on in Syria. We've tracked with the refugee crisis in Europe. We know that something is going on in China on the level of concentration camps there. Like there are massive, massive, massive injustices all over the world. And so when I turn our attention to our own country, it's not because I think we have some uh, outpacing of injustice around the world. It's because uh, I love the USA. I love being an American. I love, uh, I love celebrating that. I love uh, being where I'm at. I love that I had the opportunity to pastor a military church for 10 years. I love so many of my friends that are still serving in the military. I love our police force. I love the USA. And because I love the USA, I think it is the most American thing we can do to do what the founding fathers wanted to do is to press forward into a more perfect union. So I fully agree with uh, the, the, no, that's not going to work. I, I fully agree with uh, the writers of the uh, Declaration of Independence. When Thomas Jefferson writes, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now that line, I think, is profoundly true, and it comes with it a deep, deep hypocrisy to it. He said, these truths are self-evident, that all men uh, have these, are endowed by their creator. And yet at the same time, Thomas Jefferson and many of his brethren at the time denied that truth to men and women that they called their slaves. And I think this deep hypocrisy has festered in every generation, in every year, in every decade, in every century that America has gone forward. 
But if we want to press into this, we want to say, Thomas Jefferson, we, we agree with you. We just want to see it come to full fruition. So many, like many of you, I've, uh, I've been just taking the last few weeks and just pausing and reflecting, uh, examining my own heart, trying to understand, listen, learn, uh, reach out to friends. I, I reached out to uh, two of my mentors, Pastor Robert Gelinas. He's the pastor of, Robert, of Colorado Community Church. He ordained me. He's an African-American. So how are you doing? This is, it, it's, it's hard. I reached out to my mentor, Keita Andrews, also African-American, pastor of missions, has poured more into me than any other person in this world in terms of my theology and my uh, desire for missions and evangelism and the gospel. And so uh, when I reached out to Keita, we began texting and he said, you know, we're just, I'm just trying to walk through the trauma of this moment. Collectively as a culture, collectively in our own family and as a church. He told me the story that that Monday morning when that video of George Floyd came out, he hadn't seen it yet, didn't know about it, but Pastor Robert said, Kita, Kita, come, in, come into my office. Let's watch this. And for the next nine minutes, they, they watched that horrific video that so many of you have seen. But Kita said something interesting to me in that moment. He said, Mark, when... When we saw George Floyd, we didn't see George Floyd. We saw ourselves in that place. And he began to share many stories from his past. And you've heard many stories over the last few weeks. I don't need to share any of those. But just that, that dawning realization on me that, that, that there, are, there are Americans that see the world and experience the world and experience America in a very different way than you and I see the world and experience it. I had, uh, I had actually called up Keita and said, I, I want to go and, and spend the day with you because I just want to hear more. But the thing that prompted that, that day spending with him was, uh, was it, again, just a realization that people experience things differently and see things differently. I want to learn from that. And uh, what, what prompted it was kind of a tragic text. And, and I didn't know if I wanted to read the text to you, but I, but I read this text to you uh, only so that God would just open our eyes, that God would help push us into a, a, a sanctification and, and to see the world through different eyes. See, Pastor Kita came in about a year and a half ago. I know many of you weren't here at that time, but about a year and a half ago, he came and stood on the stage and, and opened up the word with, with us and he preached. And in his text, and this is the thing that prompted me spending the day with him, he wrote this. He said, speaking of trauma, I know you and Jennifer. I know your hearts. You love God. You love people. And you especially love me. However, I had hoped to never tell you about my experience at your church. I'll never come there again. The people worked very hard to avoid engaging me before and after I spoke. Except for one ignorant man who said, I hoped that you were going to preach more black. He said, I just walked off with my blood boiling, but I knew it didn't represent you and Jennifer. I just decided then to leave it alone, pray for you guys. I was conflicted as to why God would call you there among ignorance like that. I know you didn't expect to hear this from me, but like I said, I'm walking out the trauma. So I immediately said, no, Kita, 
I apologize. I, I own that. <laughs> I own that I would pastor and, and disciple a church that you would experience like that. I, I'm sure there was no uh, intentional ill will in the room, but, that, but, but you see and experience things different than we see and experience them. And I know that's not tr- just true with Kita. There's others that from all races that have had positive and negative experiences here. But I just wanted to share that with you just, to, just as a reminder. Like not everyone experiences the same things when they come into this room. And so I've been trying to, trying to learn, trying to engage some more. And um, as we pause the King and the Kingdom series and we just take two weeks, I, I just recognize that in two weeks there's no way we could possibly cover all that needs to be covered and say that all, need, all that needs to be said. And, and I'm not a politician. I'm not an economist. I'm not a, a sociologist. I, I'm none of those things. So I'm trying to learn in each one of those areas. But what I am is a pastor a pastor of a primarily Anglo, Anglo church in the suburbs that's healthy, wealthy, and secure. And it is my calling before God that I will stand before the Lord and give an account to how I shepherd and pastor. And, and I believe that my calling in this moment is to bring the word of God to bear on our lives and to help us see and savor Jesus and then live that out in our lives. And so uh, I want to press in on that. But I want to ask for just some grace as we do that. Uh, There's no way, again, I can say all that needs to be said. And and I might say some things the wrong way. And I might uh, not clarify terms the right way. And I I might stumble and bumble along. I have my own sin. I have my own blind spots. I'm trying to learn along with you. And so this is in no way saying uh, I'm better. I'm more advanced. This is just saying, hey, will you give me grace in this moment as we explore God's word on these things? With that, I'm going to invite you to turn to Micah chapter 6. Uh, I'll I'll read our passage and then we'll ask God to give us grace. Micah chapter 6 says this, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. So, Lord, we do ask for your spirit to do a work in and through us right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would... Uh, just put us once again under the, the, the waterfall of your grace so that we might uh, receive it and that we might have eyes and hearts and minds to embrace what you have for us as a church and as individuals now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I said this last week, but in several weeks, the, the prophets, the 17 prophets of the Old Testament, uh, they, they speak at different times, at different places over hundreds of years. But there, there are some, uh, some themes that come up uh, time and time and time and time again. So, so Pastor Matthew preached last week an amazing sermon uh, on the book of Amos. And Amos was preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel at the beginning of the 8th century. And this is about a 50 to 100 years later. And now Micah is preaching to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah uh, in, uh, at the end of the 8th century. And so uh, as he does that, what we see is actually... Uh, 
almost identical to what Amos had to say. Even though they are separated generationally and geographically, the issues are the same. There are powerful, wealthy people, the economy is booming, and they are just advancing their own cause at the cost of trampling on the poor and the oppressed in their midst. And so Amos comes and, sorry, Micah comes and echoes Amos and, and basically calls the people once again back to uh, one, understanding, and two, uh, a right relationship with God. And so, again, with, with many of you, I've been trying to learn in this time and, and learn uh, what, what my own blind spots are. What, are, what is our cultural heritage? Uh, Israel dealt with the same problems for century after century after century. And I think we still are trying to do that as Americans. And so I asked some friends, I said, hey, what are some books that I, are must-reads in this moment as I prepare for this sermon? And, and I got two of them. The first one was uh, Divided by Faith. Uh, evangelical religion and the problem of race in America. And the other one is the color of compromise, the truth about American church's complicity of racism. And it, it basically goes from before we were ever a country and just goes through and shows. And, and actually, it was quite a gr- grievous process for me to read these things. Because I've been so often to point out the, the few bright spots in our history that says, no, we had some abolitionists here. No, no, we had some people stand up for truth and righteousness here. But when you read these books, you realize that by far, rather than the church of Jesus Christ, who has the power of God and the gospel of God being a solution to the problems in the world, they are either complicit or they are actually adding to the problems in our country. And it grieves my soul deeply. When I, when I read uh, Jamar Tisby's book, he, he put it well in, in his book. He said, historically speaking, when faced with a choice between racism and equality, the American church has tended to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. They chose comfort over constructive conflict and in doing so created and maintained a status quo of injustice. Church... We must push back against hundreds of years of American church tradition that has sat on the sidelines and done nothing in the face of injustice. Again, there are, there are a few bright spots, and we will point those out. But by and large, the church has said, it's not for us. We won't do it. Just preach the gospel. Or they'll say all sorts of things to just maintain the status quo, to maintain the idols of safety, security, and comfort, power. So we got to ask the question, though, why is God so passionate about justice? Why does he care about it so much? One, it's part of his character. God is a God of justice. He he is perfect. He is righteous in all ways at all times. That's one reason. But the other reason we see on repeat in the Bible, and the reason he's so passionate about it, is this doctrine that Matthew mentioned last week, but we'll come to it again, uh, of the Imago Dei. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And, and if you were to just put on that lens to look through the, the Imago Dei and, and how God puts value in every one of our lives uh, of un- inestimable value, uh, you would begin to see why God is so passionate about justice. So, so the 12-year-old boy with Down syndrome, the girl in the, the, the brothel in Mumbai, the C- CEO on Wall Street, they're all infinitely more valuable than whoever won the Belmont Stakes yesterday. 
or secretariat or whatever majestic creature there is. There is, a, there is an infinite value because it comes from the infinite worth of our creator. And so God cares about all image bearers. He, 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 he not only cares, if you were to read through that, he, he cares about how his people engage image, image bearers and, and to lead the way in that. And so God on repeat is calling his people to be a people who love justice who engage the broken systems of this world. So if you were to read from the Bible from cover to cover with a highlighter, just highlighting all the the aspects of God's character and justice and his call to justice and his concern for justice, by the end of that year of reading through your Bible, your highlighter would probably dry out from overuse. It is all over the place when you begin to look at the Bible. And this is an issue that rolls into the New Testament. This is an issue that, uh, of, of God uh, bringing races from all tribes, tongues, and, and language together. Uh, and, and the people had a problem with it. They struggled with it. So it's one of the very first problems that the early church faced was a racial issue. In Acts chapter 6, we see that there was an injustice going on, that, that the Grecian widows were being overlooked for the Hebrew wi- widows in the, distrib- in the distribution of food. And you know what the solution was? The solution wasn't, let's just preach the gospel to those people so that everyone can kind of come in line. No, it was a system solution. And they came up with a system to put in place, and they, they ordained godly men to uh, distribute the food and, and, and share the word, and, and the system was fixed in that moment, and the church was unified, and the mission went forward, is what it says in Matthew chapter, or Acts chapter 6. Well, in Acts chapter 10, Peter gets the vision from God, from heaven, where the food is l- lowered down, and, and he wrestles with it, and he says, God, I can't touch this unclean food. And God says, I have made all things clean. And he's basically communing to Peter, uh, I have now welcomed into the family of God people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and skin color. So Peter, you too welcome them. And so Peter gets up and says, all right. In Acts chapter 15, now when Gentiles are coming into the family of God in droves, the church in Jerusalem has to wrestle with this. Like, how do we do that? How do we do life together? How do we, how do we worship alongside one another? And so they have the Jerusalem council. And again, just time and time again, when Paul writes his letters to the churches... He does what's called gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives. Gospel indicatives is he reminds the church, here's what's true of the gospel. Here's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Celebrate that. And then he goes to gospel imperatives. Now, in light of this truth, apply it this way. And he tries to apply it in the different churches in the different ways that they struggle. And time and time again, it has to do with racial issues. So the church of Rome, he reminds them that we're one in Christ. The the church at Colossae, he reminds them that all the walls of hostility have been torn down. The church at uh, in Ephesus, in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter two, he reminds them that we're unified in Christ. In Galatians, he reminds them that we're unified in Christ. Galatians chapter. 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Because they wrestled with it. They struggled at times. In fact, it wasn't just the ordinary lay Christians, it was the leadership. It was Peter. You know, Peter wrestled with this. Peter who saw the resurrected Jesus. Peter who got the vision from God that said, all people are now welcome into the family of God. About 25 years later, his heart had the idols restored to it. And Paul had to deal with that. In Galatians chapter 2, 
Verse 11, Paul tells us the story. It says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, when, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I mean, this is Paul and Peter. And Paul has to call Peter out. Why? Because he stood condemned. This is strong language. This isn't, oh, you're, you're off a little bit, Peter. No, you stood condemned. Why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He, 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 he showed a, a, a sinful bias away from the Gentiles and back to the Jews. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, when led astray, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Sweet Barnabas was led astray. But when I saw that their conduct, listen to what Paul's argument is. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Jew and not like a Jew, uh, eh, live, uh, oh, ah, let me back that up. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He, he was not walking in step with the gospel. See, see Peter's problem wasn't a doctrine problem. He, he, his doctrine was right. He, he knew that Jesus had resurrected and saved him. He, he knew that. His problem was a practice problem. So, so I want to teach you just three words that I think are really important for us. Uh, orthodoxy, orthopathos, and orthopraxy. Now, most, uh, many of you, most of us probably know orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right belief. So this is uh, your doctrinal statement. What does the Bible say? What, what is true? And, and so uh, we, we get our orthodoxy. We write up our statement of faith, and we say this is orthodoxy. This is right belief. Again, Peter didn't have an orthodoxy problem. Jonathan Edwards, one of the, probably the greatest theolo American theologian and philosopher ever, didn't have an orthodoxy problem. His, I've learned so much from him. His, he, he will blow your mind if you read him. What, what Jonathan Edwards had was a practice problem. He, he could teach amazing truths from God's word and still own several slaves in the course of his life. There was a disconnect from what he knew about the gospel and how he lived the gospel. And you could say, well, that was cultural. There was things going on and, and he just, there was just a big cultural blind spot. And I said, yes, there was a massive cultural blind spot. It's possible for whole cultures to have massive blind spots. So it's not, so that's orthodoxy. In most churches, or at least our, in our circles, we, we work very, very hard on orthodoxy. And, and rightly so. Without orthodoxy, you lose everything else. But these, the other two are important as well. Orthopathos, that's right affections or right feeling. That, that when, we, when we pray, Lord, break our heart with the things that break your heart. We're asking for orthopathos. The crazy thing about this cultural moment that we're in right now is that there are people that have no orthodoxy, but they have far better orthopathos than Christians. When they see the videos, they weep and they wail and they mourn and they cry out that this is not right. That is a right reflection. When you see injustice and you feel angry, that's a God-given anger because God is a God of justice. But the problem is if they don't have orthodoxy and they only have orthopathos, then their orthopraxy, which is right action or right practice, gets all screwed up. 
That, that's why the, the culture wars right now is there, there, there are people offering up solutions that are quite frankly demonic in this moment. All the more reason why those of us with orthodoxy can, can ask God to give us orthopathos so that we can uh, engage in orthoproxy, right? Practice. This is what God has called us to. In fact, this is what I think Micah chapter 6 is getting at. Let's look at that one more time. It says, Micah's been uh, bringing these accusations against the Lord's people. And in this scene, he's kind of giving an answer from their perspective uh, of, well, what do you want us to do? In verse 6, it says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So, so he's saying, how, how can I make this right? All this sin in my culture and my family, how can I make this right? And he offers up some solutions, kind of like last week as, as Matthew talked about. They're similar. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Is that, what, is that what you want, God? In fact, that's what you've told us you want in the past. So do you want me to do that? Let's up the ante to just ridiculous levels. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? I mean, it'll just be a bloodbath in here. Is that what God wants? With 10,000 rivers of oil? And then he just takes it to uh, an absolute ridiculous level. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's basically saying, God, what do you want from us? Like, we'll, we'll do whatever religious motions you want us to jump in and do right now. We'll do that, Lord. And then verse 8, he said, He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? Can you bring those orthos back up here real quick? I, I, I see all three of these in this, but in reverse order. To walk humbly with your God is orthodoxy. When we recognize the truth of the gospel, that we were sinners before a holy God, that we deserved only his wrath, and yet he poured out his grace to us, and through his son, Jesus on the cross, has brought us into his family, transferred us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We should be the most humble people on the planet because of our orthodoxy. God, you loved us like that? I will walk humbly with you, God. But then notice there's also orthopathos, to love kindness. Or your translation say, might say, love mercy. That's orthopathos. God, you have so loved us. I want your love to flow in and through me out into the world. I want to love kindness. I want to love mercy. I want to look for it. I want to see it. I want to be a conduit of it in my world. That's orthopathos. And that then leads to orthoproxy, but to do justice. To do justice. To be actively pursuing. Uh, Isaiah will say in Isaiah 117 to seek justice, to correct oppression. So, so this all flows together. We have to have all three of us. So we ask the question then, so what does it mean to do justice? That's a question I've received dozens and dozens of times over the last couple weeks. And it's a good question, but I'm hesitant to get there too quickly. Because as I talk with my, my friends the, the, from African-American descent and my pastors, and I, I, and I talk with them, I say, what can we do? The first thing they say is, look, we feel unseen and unheard for hundreds of years. Just sit with us, hear our stories, learn our history, 
Learn how we see the world differently from you. Just spend some time lamenting with us. And so that's right and appropriate. That's right to just pause in that moment. And, and again, we live in Parker. There, there, this is a pretty homogenous area. It's not like you can necessarily do that uh, every time. And, and, and I imagine if you have one black friend, they're probably pretty exhausted right now from all their white friends coming and asking the same questions. And so I would just encourage you maybe to go outside of that stream a little bit. There's some good books you can read, some that I've already mentioned on there, just about the history and the story. There, there's good podcasts. There's good messages you can listen to, and there's good movies. I would just encourage you, don't only listen to the ones that you know you're already going to agree with, but, but just try to take a, a spectrum of it and, and get in. So, so that's the first thing. How do we do justice? Well, first we just, we practice some orthopathos with our brothers and sisters, and we hear, and we weep with those who weep, and we mourn with those who mourn. And then to get to the question of how do we do justice, uh, I reread uh, one of my favorite books by Tim Keller, Generous Justice, this week. He, he takes a, a long time to, you can put it up there, to explain uh, different things, but, but it's a small book, uh, Generous Justice. He, he kind of defines it at one point like this, God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. That is what it means to do justice. And he actually kind of breaks it down into three, carrier, three categories. There's the justice work of relief. That is like when you see someone hungry and needy or thirsty and you give them food or drink, you're, you're, you're giving them relief in that moment. There's the justice work of, of development. That is when you take that person who you just fed and, and you now have a, a church or a system or a family come alongside them and you help equip them and develop them so that they can get out of that situation. That's development. There's the justice work of reform. That, that's when you ask the question, uh, what, what, are, what is in, in place in our culture, in our moment right now that, that is kind of leading certain people into these areas and what changes can we make in that area? So as a church, as Jennifer already mentioned, I was so encouraged this week as, as we gathered in the home to talk about uh, just foster care awareness. That's justice work. That, that, that's doing justice for, for the least uh, powerful and economically vulnerable. That's doing justice. When we gather food each month and we take it to Secor, we're doing the justice work of relief to feed families in our community. When we uh, partner with Joshua Station and we bring meals there and we rehab uh, apartments for them and we help that organization help people transition from homelessness into flourishing in this world, that's doing the justice work of development. And when we protest and when we call our representatives and when we exercise our freedom to vote and we ask our leaders for change, we're doing the justice work of reform. And Colorado became uh, one of the very first states on Friday night to pass reform. And so we celebrate that. So we are a people that are called to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. But there's a problem. The question is, and even the, and Mike kind of points it out, how much, how much justice do we really need to do, Lord? How much mercy do we really need to have? How much um, walking humbly, do we really, how much is it going to be enough? So I want to look real quick at that one, once again. Verse 8 of Micah chapter 6. He has told you, O man, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require? What does the Lord require of you? Notice Micah doesn't say, what does the Lord hope for Redemption Parker? What does the Lord want to develop in us as a church? What does the Lord require of you? When you begin to realize that God's requirements are perfection, the first thing that that should cause in us is a bit of anxiety. Oh, no. I have not always done justice. In fact, rarely have I done justice. I have not always loved mercy. I have not always walked humbly with my God. But Micah says, what does the Lord require? In your soul right now should be a a longing for it. I I need something else. I need some help. I I need a savior. I need a substitute. I, I need someone that can perfectly fulfill this in my place because I have not done justice. I have not loved mercy. I have not walked humbly with my God at all times. And this is what Micah points us to. I read to you the most famous verse in Micah, but the second most famous verse is a verse we look at at Christmas time. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Micah points us to the one that does this in us and for us and through us perfectly every time. So I said the reason God is so passionate about justice is because the Imago Dei. That's only the first reason. The second reason God is so passionate about justice is because he is a God who has literally identified himself with the poor and the oppressed. And Micah points us to to him says, oh, oh, there's going to be one that comes from ancient of days, but he's going to be born in a no-name little town. Too little to be even show up on the register. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He left his throne in glory and he came and he was born to a penniless mother and father. He identifies with the poor and oppressed. King Herod leveraged all of his resources to put to death baby Jesus and and his family fleed to Egypt because he identifies with people that have to flee from their homeland. When Herod died, he came back and grew up in an obscure little backwoods town called Nazareth with no reputation. And when he went public, he called to himself, not the powerful, not the wealthy, he called to himself fishermen and tax collectors and and zealots and other men of no repute. And how did he live his life? He lived his life with the poor and the oppressed, the broken, the sick, the needy, and he poured himself out for three years. But Jesus doesn't just know about injustice. This is why he's so passionate about it. Jesus experienced the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. He was betrayed by his friend, handed over to a corrupt authority. He was brought before a a trial that was a mockery of justice in that. He had the beard torn from his face. He was beaten. He, He knows what police brutality feels like. He was whipped, he was scourged, he was handed over to the most powerful government in the world at that time, the Roman government, and he stood before Pontius Pilate, and he did not receive justice, 
And Pilate, in his complicity, didn't want to do anything with him, but he appealed to the crowd, what should, what should I do? Who should I release? And they asked for the murderer to be released, release Barabbas. He says, well, what should I do with Jesus? And the crowd says, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knows injustice. So he was whipped and scourged. He was stripped naked in humility. Then he put, they put a heavy wooden beam on his shoulder and he carried up the hill to Golgotha, the place of the scroll, uh, the place of the skull, and Jesus was lynched. Jesus was lynched. He was cursed. The Old Testament said, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. And as he was nailed to the cross between two thieves and he hangs there, the, 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 the cross was well, they had to invent a word for it, excruciating. It was out of the cross kind of pain, unlike any other pain. But the way that you die on a cross is not just from the pain, not, not just hanging there waiting to die. The way, you know the way that you die on a cross? You die on a cross because the weight of your body collapses in on itself and you literally can't breathe. And so Jesus can't breathe. And they would say, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Jesus knows injustice. He identifies injustice with his death. And the one who perfectly fulfilled Micah 6, 8, the one who always did justice, the one who always loved mercy, the one who always walked with his God, in that moment he exchanged all of that righteousness for all of our righteousness. You and I deserve to be on the cross. You and I deserve to cry out, I can't breathe. But Jesus, with his last breaths, takes a gulp and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gives up his spirit and he dies. This is why Jesus is so passionate about justice. This is why Jesus wants his followers to be so passionate about justice. He became sin, who knew no sin, that you and I might become the righteousness of God. So we can't ever do Micah 6, 8 ourselves. But praise be to God, that wasn't the end of the story. On the third day, Jesus conquered death in the grave, sent his Holy Spirit to live his life through us. And only by the Spirit can we do justice. Only by the Spirit can we love mercy. Only by the Spirit can we walk humbly with our God. Church, may that be true of Redemption Parker in these days. Let me pray for us. So, Father, we thank you for your grace to us, Jesus. You have showered mercy and love and grace. Lord, I know that there are so many idols lodged in my heart that I can't see them. But I, I thank you for grace that exposes a few of them in me and, and maybe in us this morning. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, look to you, that we wouldn't try to earn our righteousness by trying to work harder to do justice. But we would rest in our righteousness that you've given me and walk in your power in the days to come. Lord, we ask these things to be true in us. In Jesus' name, amen.